Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Can you be two people at the same time? How legitimate is the UFO disclosure that's supposed to be coming this week? If reincarnation is true, why are there so many ghosts? Welcome to the 900th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WOON AM and FM Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You can find it there and on TuneIn.com. I'm Mark D'Antonio, sitting in today for Ben, uh, who is away at the moment, but he'll be back. And uh, those very questions from Paul come from this wonderful guy who is not my dad, Paul Eno. Well, thank you, Mark. Speaking of dads, a very happy Father's Day to all dads out there. And we're very pleased to have one of them with us today, of course. Uh, and two of them, actually, uh, with our great uh, station manager, uh, Dave Richards, sitting in for Ben as producer today. Uh, ben and his wife have a dear friend being ordained to the priesthood this weekend, and uh, they didn't want to miss that, so that's why he's not here. And a uh, shout-out to the new father, Lucas LaRoche, Diocese of Worcester, Massachusetts, also a very dear friend of mine. So uh, Mark D'Antonio, astronomer, lecturer, and media personality, and one of the zany gang that helps us investigate flap areas is co-hosting for Ben today. Mark is the national photo and video analyst for the Mutual UFO Network and one of our favorite guest co-hosts. Now, in honor of our 900th official show today, we have a number of surprises for you. The first surprise is our second guest co-host. Now, for years now, regular listeners have come to expect thoughtful weekly questions from the mysterious Peter from South America. So, voila, we welcome Peter William Shelley from Bogota, Colombia. Peter is the host of his own podcast now, Shadowy Spectrums, uh, available on YouTube. We'll talk a little bit about that later. It uh, turns out that Peter is an American, originally from California, who is in Bogota to teach English. He has a lifelong interest in UFOs, and we'll get into his childhood experience in the second half of the show. Peter, welcome to Behind the Paranormal in a New Capacity. Well, thank you. Hi, Paul and Mark. Uh, happy Father's Day. You too. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I want to thank, uh, thank you for inviting me here, and uh, it's a great honor. Uh, Looks like I'm maybe a little bit overexposed on the light, uh, but um, yeah, shadowy spectrums. I'm doing a podcast uh, on YouTube, which is uh, focusing on uh, researchers outside of the United States. Uh, for example, I just interviewed uh, Laszlo Miskolci in Hungary, mm. who was the first researcher in his country to access the Hungarian UFO military files. Quite interesting. Wow. Inter interview. Excellent. And uh, I'm going to continue in that in that area. Very good. Well, great to have you with us uh, today, both of you fellows. Uh, let's begin with a couple. We have some callers uh, coming in, I'm sure, very shortly, but we uh, have a lot of questions from listeners here. Let's begin with a, it's more of an, uh, an observation, uh, a report from John in California. And uh, John writes, I drive from Bakersfield to Porterville almost every day. It's like an hour drive. A lot of open fields, desert fields. A couple of nights ago I was driving back home. I noticed two objects. One was higher than the other at about 500 yards apart, but they were like, uh, they were locked in sync. 
at a perfect hover. Uh, at first, I thought they might have been drones because they were just hovering there. As I kept watching them, they were actually moving upward in that same locked position. Uh, till they got so high, they started to fade away from sight. They couldn't have been drones because they could never get that high. I'm kicking myself for not getting out of the car to record. Yeah, John, uh, but I was driving and there were people behind me. <laughs> okay, that I get. So that's sort of an interesting sighting there. Um, is that a sort of a typical, um, you know, the sort of the, the, the synced kind of lights, that sort of thing? I'm thinking of the Phoenix lights. Any comments from uh, you fellows? Uh, start with Mark. Well, to be honest with you, um, when you look at uh, when you look at UFO sightings all over the world, you, you get um, a variety of sightings. One of the problems we have is that, let's be honest, humans are very poor observers. And uh, Stanford uh, University and the I Institute have done studies that show that when you try to gauge distance of something from you at night in a dark sky, you're notoriously bad at it. So when someone says they were the size of a football field, and say, and not in this case, but you know the objects were the size of a football field, or they were, say, in this case, 500 yards apart, well, how do you know? You don't know the distance because you can't tell that. And there's no way to tell that unless you actually have a second observation point so you can actually triangulate that distance. Without that, uh, you're crippled and you just have a singular point of observation. Um, and your binocular vision doesn't work because your eyes are only a couple inches apart. They really need to be many feet apart uh, if you actually want to get an adequate uh, look. So the data, when someone says that, you, you can't trust that data like that day or night in a blank sky. You, you don't have any... You don't have any uh, way to, to gauge that. Uh, so um, I've heard cases like this where there's been objects that seem to be moving together in the sky. Um, and my first thought would be, well, you know, how long did it last? Which direction were they moving? Uh, how bright were they relative to each other and relative to, say, the stars? Could you see the stars? There's a whole host of questions you want to ask about that in order to get to the bottom of it. You know what I mean? So... Uh, I don't know if we have any of that data. If we do, uh, I'll be happy to take a stab at it, Paul. Okay. I'll ask John for that. Uh, Peter, any comments? Uh, and, and in addition to that, if you have any questions for Mark, this is the uh, the uh, pinnacle of your life as a questioner on this show because you're actually here. So any oh, comments okay. on John's uh, uh, observation or, or questions for Mark? Yeah, both. Uh, just real quick on the uh, – uh, I'd like to see the witness revisit that area and see if he can uh, – uh, see this uh, uh, these lights again uh, the fact that they were uh, in synchronization locked in synchronization uh, that's very intriguing that uh, suggests uh, something uh, interesting uh, I don't know beyond that I would like to see him go back there and see if he can uh, get any more information see it again and I do have a question for Mark uh, Mark uh, regarding the resolution of uh, military videos that we've been seeing recently, uh, can you tell us why the quality is so bad? In other words, what I'm what I'm seeing in the Tic Tac videos and similar videos that have been released recently is quality that matches World War II combat yep. photography. My dad was a photographer for the Navy. In naval aviation, he, he took photographs from airplanes for the Navy in World War II, 
and the quality is equal or inferior to World War Two. Yeah. So what's what's with this resolution? No one questions the resolution. This Actually, is satisfactory. I don't think so. I, I get your point, and um, you got to keep in mind, though, what we're actually seeing. We're actually seeing infrared video. Uh, we're using infrared sensors. They only see the heat emanating from an object. So, for instance, if you have a, uh, a metal plate and you put it 100 feet away from you and it's 70 degrees Fahrenheit uh, and you put it in front of a wall that's 50 degrees Fahrenheit, it'll show up. But if the wall is made 70 degrees Fahrenheit, you won't see it at all. It'll be blended in. But yet, with a visual camera, you can see the shape of this circle in front of the wall without any problem. You could paint it a different color, and it would just stand out like crazy. But in the infrared, it wouldn't look any different because the infrared's only seeing the, the, the heat. The problem with the infrared sensors is they don't have the resolution of cameras. Your, 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 your iPhone has better resolution in some cases than the infrared camera, in most cases than the infrared cameras do that are used on military helicopters sometimes, okay? Because they, they don't have the sensor capability to have a very high resolution. And many times what they'll show in these videos, they'll show a section of an overall video too. So if the video is, say, a resolution, say, that's say, um, let's call it 800 by 600, okay, pixels in size, then maybe they're only showing you a small section of it. And then they zoom that in and fill the screen with it. And now that looks real fuzzy and blurry and pixely. Well, as expected, because that's what you're going to get with that situation. So you got both of those things happening. Um, but the infrared sensors are usually, again, they're, they're sensitive only to the heat. So they record data differently. And they're not going to show it with the same resolution as a, as a, as a 4K camera, for instance. I wish uh, to see a 4K infrared system that'd be wonderful uh, i should point out <clears throat> as we continue our conversation today that uh and correct me if i'm wrong peter but uh, peter lives on the approach to uh, el dorado luis carlos galan sarmiento international airport in bogota <laughs> so you may hear the occasional aircraft we assure you they're not ufos we don't think anyway uh so is that correct peter yeah, they, uh, I think that one just went by, so sorry about that. No, no, no. Well, well stop the plane. Stop the aircraft traffic. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Great. With my freeze ray. <laughs> That's right. Okay, excellent. Uh, okay, we have another question from uh, Marie, and we don't know where Marie is from. Uh, one night, uh, this is an entirely different sh kind of shifting gears here. One night, I recall standing up in my yellow and white crib, you know, child infant, infant uh, memory here, uh, in the half-light of that dark room, seeing something, I don't know what, but uh, yet I was, uh, I was that thing I saw. I remember being both a baby in the crib, pointing at something floating above her, and yet I remember uh, being the thing that was floating above and staring down at me. I was standing up in my crib, clearly seeing something disturbing, and yet there I was floating as well. And about six months to a year after this, it happened again, and this time during broad daylight. And I think we have one of our callers, surprise callers, coming in. So we will put Marie's question on uh, the back burner and get back to it later. Do we have, we have Dr. Jeffrey Long, everyone, uh, one of our surprise callers. Uh, Jeff is an internationally recognized expert in afterlife research and near-death near experiences. 
uh, practicing oncologist in Louisiana and an author. Uh, hopefully he's staying dry down there, a lot of storms. He and his wife Jody founded Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. He is on the board of the International Association for Near-Death Studies and serves with me on the Research Committee of the Consciousness and Contact Research Institute. Uh, we're going to do a full show with Jeff this fall. Meanwhile, he is a featured speaker at the Virtual Contact in the Desert event next weekend. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Great. You know, it took some doing, too. Um, I don't know if you know Mark D'Antonio. Yeah, I've, I've heard of Mark. Okay, and uh, meet uh, Peter Shelley, our special guest Hi. host today. Hi, yeah. Doctor. Greetings, Peter. So, first of all, uh, what's going on at Contact in the Desert, and what are you speaking on? Yeah, Contact in the Desert is coming up. It'll be full tilt next weekend. Lots and lots of excellent speakers. I was really honored and delighted to have a chance to be among them. Uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, excellent talks. I'm going to be talking mainly about my area of expertise, near-death experiences and consciousness that occurs during near-death experiences. Um, I'll be on several panels, and I've even got a workshop going, so uh, a lot of exciting material for anybody that's interested. Excellent. Uh, Mark or Peter, do uh, you have any thoughts on near-death experiences you'd like to put to uh, or ask um, Dr. Long here? Well, I'll uh, start with one. Uh, Mark, was that you? No, if you, if you want to say first, go ahead. Hey. Peter, you look like you're uh, processing something there. But uh, anyway, so what is your conclusion about near-death experiences? Uh, how do they work? What do they mean? Uh, I, I, I would just start with, with a uh, maybe a conversation starter in the sense that things that develop in our evolution are for survival purposes. You know, and uh, why would such an experience develop if our body is dying? And that's a real good question because evolutionarily, the way we survive, our ancestors survive, it's what's called the flight or fight response to a life-threatening event. Uh, so as a result of that, you're more alert, uh, you sort of uh, become stronger, faster, and you get away quickly from the threat or you have the ability to fight to the best of your physiologic ability. And that's what's so interesting among the many things that are interesting about near-death experiences. You don't really have that. It actually goes the opposite direction of fight or flight. They're typically overwhelmingly peaceful. Uh, peace is uh, love is perhaps two of the most common words used as the descriptors of near-death experience. Pain goes away essentially always, even though they had that, a close brush with death immediately preceding their near-death experience. And that uh, certainly goes completely different from what you would expect if, if that fight-or-flight response said at, at the time you nearly die. Have you run into people who have had terrible near-death experiences, because I have? Yeah. There, I've, uh, there's about, oh, maybe a little over 20 near-death experiences i found in my archives of over 3,500. So that's how rare, frightening, especially hellish near-death experiences are. Now, frightening near-death experiences can simply be subjectively frightening. For example, I had a near-death experience from a person who coded while they were in the ambulance. Their consciousness was above the ambulance as they rushed to the hospital, and angels appeared. So I think most everybody would say, wow, that's beautiful, that's wonderful. Well, they frightened this person having the near-death experience, and he batted at them. So that's subjectively frightening, and that's not necessarily objectively frightening. Now, the hellish near-death experiences are certainly objectively frightening, where you have uh, hellish, demonic imagery, frightening locations, uh, sounds and smells that are extremely disruptive. 
I think the key thing to remember about the, these true, objectively frightening, hellish near-death experiences is, first and foremost, they're extremely rare, so it's hard to make any sweeping conclusions about them. Secondly, the substantial majority of such hellish NDEs I've seen reported are not really NDEs. They tend to be confused with experiences that occur, say, in the intensive care unit as you recover from what nearly nearly killed you, and, and they're not true near-death experiences. But thirdly, and I think most importantly, People that have these hellish near-death experiences, uh, very commonly after they process their experience, uh, typically years later, they may say that there was really no other way for them to make that positive life change other than to go through such a frightening experience. And literally there's light at the end of the tunnel even for these people that have uh, walked through hell in their near-death experience. Mm. Um, No, go ahead, Uh, Mark. Uh, Mark or Peter want to jump in here. I I actually... um See, I was going to ask you if you if you were if you ever had any people that had experiences like mine where uh, I was angry uh, because I felt that I was being abducted and by uh, by a group of people that were ancestors of mine and taken out of surgery right in the middle of surgery and I was angry because they, I was supposed to be in surgery and they were taking me out of there and. They tried to say that they were there to help me, and I got more and more angry with them. Um, the bottom line is, uh, they they did help me, and uh, they actually, uh, I think, uh, helped me to save my own life. Um, as weird as that sounds, because I had surgery, which went sideways. Paul knows this story, and um, I ended up having uh, eight. Uh, large strokes on the operating table and they never knew it so when I awoke a week later out of a coma they they discovered that I was a quadriplegic and profoundly blind this was six years ago uh, and wow. these people that helped me um, they basically wanted me to shoot this object in the sky that was a black amorphous blob over the sun and when I did that um they were very pleased and said, ah, you know, now we know you're going to be all right now. I had no idea what they were talking about. But when I awoke, the surgeon told me, he said, uh, when we restarted your heart, uh, there was a clot apparently at the operating site that got away. And it got to your brain. And when it, when it got to your brain, uh, the reason you're still here is because it exploded into a million pieces. And that saved your life. Wow. And that was well, that- pretty st- but I was on a trach, so I couldn't talk. <laughs> so all he yeah. heard was... Because <laughs> I was, like, all excited because I knew exactly what that was. See what I mean? So, But I was angry the whole time. And then, of course, embarrassed. Well, no, one should never be embarrassed about an experience you have, you know, especially when it contained elements that, that may have contributed to your healing. So that's actually pretty dramatic, in my opinion. Now, that's certainly very atypical imagery for the usual near-death experiences we see, but then again, no two near-death experiences are the same. Again, having studied over 3,500, uh, I can attribute to that. But that's that's uh, very vivid. It's also quite unusual for people to be angry uh, throughout their near-death experience at other beings there. That's that's, that's quite well, uncommon, that's, too. I was being taken uh, out of something that I needed to save my life, and... I was really pissed. Now, the thing is, my mother was Native American, and these were Native Americans. Oh, okay. Now we're going. I, we do have some Native American near-death experiences, and 
there are some variability across cultures, so that may well be what's going on there. That's very interesting. So that may have accounted to some extent for this unusual content of the near-death experience and could certainly have helped explain the, the uh, healing mechanism that, that wouldn't be the usual typical non-Native American Western near-death experience. So absolutely fascinating, and thanks for sharing that. No, it's great. I mean, I, I, I went from being blind and quadriplegic to walking out of the hospital with my sight three weeks later. They said it was going to take a year of recovery and, you know, eight to ten weeks in the hospital to get some of this mobility back because it was several weeks after this all occurred that I went to rehab. But um, I figured out how to heal myself, you know, and, and I've passed that on to a bunch of people. And um, I, um, I think it's a really important thing to get out there that people need to know that they can heal their bodies yeah the brain plastic when i saw him he was in a wheelchair and then short you know not too long after he walked out uh peter hey. did you want to jump in here well i've never i that, that was a fantastic story mark i really appreciate that sharing that um i've never had a near-death experience but i did have i think an experience out-of-body experience uh and uh the only there were no it was just the the perception of being. Uh, I was in my bed, and then all of a sudden I was on my front lawn, and there was nothing remarkable in the uh, the visual sense, except that I could turn 360 degrees. I was standing on my lawn, and the and the the definition was more than high definition. It was ultra definition. It was just like every molecule was super real. And I could turn 360 degrees and see everything. I had, it was an amazing effect. Uh, I didn't see anybody, uh, any, any, uh, people or entities. Uh, and then it was over. Wow. Fascinating. What was Thanks that? For sharing that. Yeah. Remarkably, I literally was just writing about supernormal sensory awareness for some writing I'm doing about near death experience just within the last several hours. Um, it's possible for people to have, when their consciousness is apart from the body, as in an out-of-body experience or near-death experience, vision is commonly supernormal, just like you described. We've even had people describe 360-degree vision, where they're simultaneously seeing in front of them, back, right, left, and up, down, even without turning. And so that, that can happen. And certainly the ultra-definition of vision you describe is, seems to be, if you will, the norm particularly in near-death experiences where vision is occurring. And, of course, when you're not in your physical body and consciousness to separate, uh, it's really not vision the way we know in our physical body. There seems to be some super normal, super, uh, well, extra brain, beyond brain type vision that goes on. And so not surprisingly, it's, it's different, typically, interestingly, more vivid, just as you described. Okay. Well, uh, I suppose I might as well uh, get in here out of a need for a group identification and uh, tell you about the closest thing I think I've ever had to a near-death experience. It was some years ago. Ben was a baby, and we were living in our old place in the woods of Cumberland, Rhode Island. And uh, I, unbeknownst to myself, I, w I felt very strange. I was having atrial fibrillation, and I also had pneumonia in the right lung. I was not in good shape. And uh, <clears throat> I, I, all of a sudden... I was in my, my home office there, and Ben had a little place he stayed during the day. And I saw something, I suppose, that should have been scary, but was absolutely magnificent. It was uh, a, a cave that had been 
worked by humans you know, w- with uh, an arch, and a multicolored lizard was standing uh, with tremendous iridescent colors such as I'd never imagined, standing there, uh, looking out. You know, it was all you know weird and everything, but but it was just absolutely gorgeous. And the something slapped me in the face and said, "Go to the hospital, stupid." And that's and I went. I drove myself to the hospital, believe it or not. And uh, they found out that I had, and I was in the hospital for ten days between the pneumonia and the AFib. So <laughs> I don't know. I never even heard of anything like that. Uh, I don't know. Is that normal, Jeff, or not, or what? I, I, well, you know, I think when you start talking about normal, I mean, certainly it's not an ordinary, everyday occurrence, and yet. When you study the non-ordinary experiences that I have for over 20 years, that's certainly in the realm of what could be called, I would call that a, a spiritual experience where you're getting information that directly led to your healing. And so that, I mean, good, medically speaking as a physician, um, shoot, if you've got atrial fibrillation and pneumonia, that's a life-threatening event. Mm. So it's interesting that you got information like that from outside of your own consciousness that helped direct you toward a hospital, which literally could have saved your life. Being in the hospital for 10 days speaks how close your brush to death was with all that. Yeah, I was in critical condition, actually. Um, and, you know, that was many, many years ago. I was in my 40s. Uh, kind of uh, haven't anything like that since. <clears throat> but, um, yeah, it certainly was information from outside, from wherever. And what the lizard had to do with anything, I don't know, but it was just a very beautiful experience, very, very vivid. So there we have it. Well, Jeff, what a great pleasure to have you on the show. We look forward to doing a full show with you very soon. And remind us once again about Contact in the Desert. Yeah, Contact in the Desert is coming up next weekend. You go to just Google Contact in the Desert 2021, and you can find all the information about speakers, how to register, and it's going to be exciting and informative and inspirational talks for days. Outstanding. Very good. And uh, we'll be talking to you very soon. Excellent. Thanks. Appreciate the chance to talk. Have a great day, all. All right. Thanks again, Jeff. Okay. We're going to uh, take our bottom of the hour break here, and you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Special guest guest co-hosts today, Mark D'Antonio and Peter William Shelley, here on WOON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to The Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late-night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnye.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Okay, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM, our 900th official show. And uh, we have special guest co-hosts today, Mark D'Antonio and Peter William Shelley. And we have a very special surprise caller today, none other than John Zaffis. If anybody lives under a rock and doesn't know who John Zaffis is, he's a world-renowned paranormal researcher, author, uh, media personality, and uh, much more. I first met John in 1974 when he was like 19 at the home of his aunt and uncle, Ed and Lorraine Warren. John, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you so much, and happy Father's Day. And to you, my friend. 
and congratulations on the show. Thank you very much. Now, do you know uh, Mark D'Antonio? You're practically neighbors there in uh, the old country, uh, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Well, his name's very familiar. <laughs> yeah, of course. I believe I've met him. Very good. So uh, tell us what you're working on. Catch us up. And, and, and I must comment first, though, that uh, John has not been on the show very much, but over the next 900 shows, I think you're going to see a lot more of him. So, uh, so John, what, what's cooking with you? There's always something interesting. Well, uh, just uh, getting back out there, Paul, uh, going back to doing investigations, went back to doing a couple of the conventions, and just... Uh, Feeling my way back out there trying to adjust to our new world. <laughs> yeah, as we all are. I remember our, our first and only appearance on TV together that I can recall was like in 1998. And um, I hadn't seen you since 1974 there. And we were on a, a call-in TV show together, and we had so much fun. I remember that. And uh, one of the more interesting stories I've heard about you lately, if you want to comment, is that uh, you are, I believe, the caretaker of of the famous doll Annabelle, made famous on the uh, Conjuring. No, no, I'm not the the uh, person taking care of that at the, you know, uh, the all the items to my knowledge, including Annabelle, still resides uh, within Ed and Lorraine Warren's barn or their museum on their property. Oh, okay, that's where I remember it. I used to walk by it all the time in that tunnel that went to the barn from the the house. Uh, but um, I remember that the story I heard was that it was a, you were at a paranormal conference. This goes back a few years, and some some people nobody knew showed up and claimed to have the Annabelle doll and were selling tickets to see it. And you walked up to them, so I heard, and they they didn't know who you were. And now who doesn't know who John that John Zaffis is? So that that just that just struck me. I I could just see your face uh, if if that occurred. Do you, do you recall that? Yes, I, rec- I recall it. Um, it was, again, you know, I don't mind seeing things and people mocking things up or, you know, uh, talking about things, but to, uh, it was completely set up exactly, the, the case, the doll, everything with it, and they, I guess, were uh, charging to take photographs with it or charging in some way, shape, or form. And at that point in time, I went, okay, that's just, you know, going a little bit too far. And I remember walking up, and I just had said, I go, Did, really, I, you're charging, and, you know, it's really not tied in or anything. And if my memory serves me correct, one of them had made a remark to me about being related to Ed and Lorraine Warren. <laughs> and at that point, that's when... I just stood there and I'm like, okay, I know I got a bunch of cousins of things I don't know, but I don't think they're going to be letting you take the doll and just cruise all over the U.S. showing it off. But wow. that, that, that's what the whole thing was about. And it was just like, okay, fine. You know, I understand people are doing mock-up things. We all, you know, uh, have different things. But, um, again, you got to be careful how you present and what you put in the forefront. Absolutely. So, uh, Mark or, 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 or Peter, do you have any questions for John while we have him here? Because I have a few. Uh, uh, yeah, John. Uh, hi. Uh, hi. What do you think? Of, what do you think about the uh, the uh, Hollywood versions depicting uh, their research? Um, do you have any comments about that? 
I get confused. I get bewildered just like everybody else. <laughs> um, you know, you, you, I do. I, I, naturally, I have to go see them because, again, I start getting asked a million and one questions in regards to the cases versus the books, what Hollywood presents. And a lot of times, you know, you, you just sit there and you try to take it in and understand it. Now, what is probably a very beneficial thing to me is that I'm so used to this. You know, with all of the paranormal movies that come out, um, and once you're sitting there watching them, and if you were an actual investigator involved with that case, it makes you just take that step back and go, okay, I have to try to piece some of this together. Because, again, we all know this, that, that, that have done investigations. 90% of the time, you know, you're just sitting there or... You know, it's it's kind of boring. And the bottom line is the fact that if you pay to go see a movie and you're sitting there watching a horror or a scary movie and you're not getting scared, what are we going to do? We're going to go home. Don't waste your time. It's boring. Don't go see it. So, you know, being it when you're involved with the field, you, you comprehend and you understand some of that. And then when it comes time when I'm lecturing, or speaking on one of the particular, you know, movies that had come out, then I explain what I know, what I had seen, or, you know, uh, the different things that I was involved with. So, again, I look at them, and the most confusing one to me so far was Conjuring 3. And hmm. then Annabelle. Those are the most confusing ones to me. Okay. I haven't seen hmm. those yet. Uh, while we have you, uh, can you give us a preview, John, of uh, any interesting cases you're working on? Uh, well, I just uh, recently uh, was involved with a case um, that was uh, pretty hardcore, and it uh, tied in with uh, things, you know, very much on the dark side, a very high priest that was uh, involved with uh, the dark practices, Um had created what we know as the version of a Dybbuk box. And that, that, that's, that, that's another whole show within itself, the Dybbuk yeah. box. But, yeah. you know, well, um, the new Kirk's involved there. It, they, they, well, so many people because it's just, they just took the, the meaning of it and just, you know, t- turned it into, you know, a Hollywood version, there you go, a good example of it. Mm. But anyhow, uh, this box was created, put something in it, locked it up, did a lot of sigils on the exterior of the box, and uh, did not want to remove it uh, from the home he was living in. And um, when the person called and asked him to remove it, he would not remove it. So that told me right then and there that uh, some of the activity was... Uh, literally uh, tying in with with some of that. A a lot of the more uh, hardcore type situations, Paul, with people or individuals, I'm always guarded and careful. A lot of times it could have to do with the profession they work in or, Mm. you know, family members. You know, again, uh, I'm guarded. But that that was a pretty heavy-duty case, and that's been you know, very, very recent within the past week or so. Okay, well, we'd like to hear more about that uh, when it develops. 
Uh, and, and certainly want to give a shout out to, of course, uh, to, the, to, the, to the blessed memory of, of our dear friend Rosemary Ellen Guiley, uh, who yeah. is your, your co-author, uh, dear friend of the show, occasional guest co-host here, uh, and certainly one of the most prolific writers in this field for many, many years. Uh, translated, as we say, uh, tw- uh, a few years ago, and, and we really miss her. So um, we wanted to say that. So, John, we'll be in touch about uh, getting you back on the show for a full show. And uh, good luck to you, my friend. Happy Father's Day, and uh, thanks for calling in. Okay, thank you for having me on, and happy Father's Day to everybody out there also. And we'll be talking. Take Excellent. care. Very good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Now, Peter, we have a clear flight deck here for a moment. Uh, please share your um, childhood experience, if you would. This is a UFO experience. Yes, um, okay, in uh, 1969, San Jose, California, November 13th, about uh, 9 p.m., I was on the back of my uh, house with the family cat sitting down facing the Santa Cruz Mountains. It was dark, and then there's an illumination to my right. I turn and look, and I see a lozenge-shaped, Lime green light, uh, about four feet, four feet off the ground, just a stationary, uh, suspended, and has fuzzy edges, lime green, neon type brilliance, and it shoots up into the sky, uh, makes an arc, goes over the Santa Cruz Mountains, and as it uh, disappears behind the mountains, it illuminates the underside of the clouds. And this was totally silent. Uh, it happened in about, it made this transit in about seven seconds. Uh, and oddly, there was no illumination that I remember in my backyard, only the object, but on the clouds, it illuminated the underneath. My reaction was, I saw a UFO, I'm yelling, I'm screaming. Uh, I run into the house and I'm, I continue to yell, I saw a UFO. And uh, oddly, there's nobody in my house that I remember, no family members, and there would have been at that time. And then I was so excited, I made a phone call. I called Vandenberg Air Force Base, an absurd phone call. I, I called them and said, uh, did you send up a rocket? And, oh, no, we didn't send up anything. And then, of course, that's ridiculous because Vandenberg Air Force Base is not going to launch a rocket from my backyard. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I was, I was convinced that I saw something not of this world. Uh, and, uh, I don't really have any explanation for it, but, um, as a consequence, I was inspired to, uh, join Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained, uh, with, uh, Ivan T. Sanderson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, uh, uh, a group that investigated all kinds of phenomena. I got the newsletter pursuit, yeah. and I was uh, obsessed, even more obsessed with the phenomena. But that absolutely convinced me that this phenomena is a reality to it. Uh, I don't need the government to tell me anything. I know it's real. Yeah, Mark, any comments? Yeah, actually, I was going to ask a, a question. Um, this was in your backyard, Peter. Yes. Okay. San Jose, California. 
Okay, so you know the size of your backyard, so you figure, like, how, how, how big was it in size? Well, the object, I'm guessing, was about as big as a car. Okay. And, uh... You said. I'm sorry? You said it was four feet off the ground. Approximately, suspended in the air. All right, all right. Interesting. And I... I and then the, my house is two-story. Yeah. And there's trees behind that and a fence... And this is within that. So this is in an enclosed yard. Correct. Okay. And no sound. And why why was there no illumination in the backyard? I don't remember any at all. Now here's the thing. The experience started with this this object uh, at almost at ground level. I never saw anything come down. So I'm thinking, am I missing some information? I'm wondering, maybe hypnotic regression, maybe there's more information there. Maybe. Because logically, I should have seen something come down. But the experience started with the object already there. Well, then maybe it didn't come down. Maybe it just uh, popped in, right, that, that spot. I mean, when we talk about UFOs, we also talk about interdimensionality and, and the potential that uh, something could shift in from a different dimension. And we know there's more than, you know, four dimensions, you know, X, Y, and Z all moving through time. I mean, we, we have four dimensions we know of, but there's more than that. We just can't access them with our science, uh, with the same uh, ready access that we have with uh, the other four dimensions we do know. So it's possible that it just showed up there. As far could as illumination. Um, yeah, it could be. I mean, but then why did it physically travel through the sky and go over the mountains? Why didn't just teleport again? I I think there's mixed modes of travel that these things have. You know, obviously when we look at the Tic Tac video, if you're to believe the witnesses, the videos don't really say much. Actually, the videos are actually rather uh, nondescript. They don't say anything that's that is out of the ordinary for me, and they don't show us anything that's otherworldly to me. But uh, the witness testimony, the pilot testimony, and so forth, and the um, like, the, like from the guys in the Princeton and the other ships, that says volumes. That speaks to volumes for me. But I think that um, there's mixed modes of travel. They can pop in and out uh, potentially, uh, and they can travel linearly from one place to another. Uh, maybe it depends on how much energy they have to use in order to do one task or another. It's, it's possible. Well, let me let me just add. I did a couple years ago uh, contact uh, Peter Davenport at the National UFO Reporting Center, and it's recorded on his site. So I did do that. Okay. Okay. Uh, I wanted to get back to Marie's question here. Very interesting. But um, uh, why don't we get into while we have a good transition here the notion that. Very soon, in the next few days, the Pentagon is supposed to release all this alleged uh, disclosure. And w- what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you want to start with you, Peter? I think there's anything to this? Well, um, okay, this is entirely my opinion. Um, and um, I think, uh, well, here's my prediction. The famous astronomer Seth Shostak will not be losing his job as a consequence of this report. From SETI. So he doesn't have to worry. Yeah. Uh, my personal opinion is that, sadly, this is not, the report is not about educating the public. 
my feeling, and this is only my opinion, is that it's going to be used to generate uh, funding for programs. And I'm even projecting that there may be an expression that may come as a result of this report. And this expression is hypersonic gap. Remember the missile gap? Mm. Okay, this is a new version of that. And we have to spend money to, to deal with this uh, new issue, the hypersonic gap. Yep. But never, never, we're gonna, never the report's going to identify uh, that it's an extraterrestrial source. It's going to be kept at an unknown, and that way there's more possibilities, and uh, that's my, my reaction. Unfortunately, uh, I, I don't think we're going to get what we really want. Okay. My opinion only. Yep. Uh, Mark, what say you? Well, you know... Uh, Here's what I think. First of all, I don't think we're going to hear anything new. I don't think we're going to hear startling revelations. I really don't. Um, But that's just because, you know, every single presidential candidate promises disclosure. It never happens. Senators promise it. It never happens. You know, I was at the disclosure hearings. You know, nothing came of that. Okay. Um, Everybody wants disclosure, but if there's something to disclose then it'll eventually leak out. Uh, I don't think that we've given that, believe it or not, even though Roswell was so long ago, I don't think we've actually given that enough time. I think that in time, we're going to get a lot more of that type of leak that comes out. But uh, as far as the hypersonic gap, I can speak to that because uh, I witnessed uh, as as a visitor aboard a U.S. submarine at sea, uh, I witnessed a... Uh, underwater object through the sonar guy's eyes and his report to the executive officer, I witnessed a, a vehicle moving several hundred knots underwater. There's nothing in any nation on the earth that can move several hundred knots underwater except for one particular rocket torpedo called a Squall. It's the Russian, uh, but it's the loudest thing in the ocean. You could hear it an ocean away. And it's a desperation weapon. You fire it, it goes in a straight line, um, pretty much. Well, uh, and that's like a 200-knot weapon. Um, so this object was almost silent, and it left a trail for just a short time. And the kid in the sonar uh, remarked about it, and I didn't hear the bearing in the range, but he, he was astonished that it was going several hundred knots. And... A few years later, I had to do a particular job for the Joint Chiefs in Washington. And I asked one of the chiefs directly, what can you tell me about the fast mover program? Because that's what they call this on the boat, fast mover. And uh, he could have said he doesn't know anything about it, blah, blah, blah. But he didn't. He said, I'm sorry, I can't talk about that program. So hypersonic technology is something that the Navy has been after. There's patents for it that they own. Okay. And I think you know that. Um, uh, the person who generated the patents is someone who may not be, you know, he's, he's considered fringe by some, but you know, Einstein was actually considered fringe by some, believe it or not. Um, <clears throat> so I think that there's a lot to this that we have yet to see. Okay. Uh, any further thoughts, Peter? Uh, well, I think uh, a more interesting, uh, an interesting question is why 
why won't we get exposure if we're projecting that? Why not? And why why is this report coming at this time? These are also interesting questions. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think uh, the uh, the reasons for uh, uh, secrecy are multiple, different perspectives. I mean, has anyone considered the perspective uh, of the phenomena itself is secretive? I wonder why. Well, could it be the nature of human beings wanting to shoot at everything, including UFOs? I mean, we are a dangerous species, right? So why should they expose themselves? So that's a reason for... There's so many reasons for secrecy. It's it's That's a whole program in itself. Yeah. Um, secrecy is not necessarily a bad thing. It, it protects. It protects us. So... Um, there's, I think I, my, my reaction to this disclosure movement is that whatever the government says, I'm not going to, I'm going to be suspicious. If they say aliens are here, I, will, I won't believe it. If they don't, if they say nothing, there's nothing to it, I won't believe it. So the best thing that we can do is make ex, a disclosure for ourselves, do our own investigation. Maybe you'll have a sighting that will give you that experience. Don't hold your breath for the government. Get outside. Get away from your computer. Walk around. S- smell the air. Look at the sky. Do your own investigation. It's a wonderful thing to investigate. Yes, that's you know, what we need to do. I agree with that 100. You know, and in fact, I have a I have an observatory in the Arizona desert that's fully remote. You know, I run it from here, 2,400 miles away, and. Part of what we do is we look for odd objects that are traveling through the field of this large instrument out there. And uh, the trouble is that not a whole lot of people have access to the kind of equipment they need to make such a definitive, definitive identification. They have the cell phone. And they look at the cell phone. Look at that thing I caught. And it's always bouncing around in the sky. It's always out of focus. It's always bad quality like we've talked about. So... um, as society becomes more aware and more capable, more importantly, then we'll get better data. You know, um, so I think that that's something that you know you're right on the money with this. As far as why, why, why would they not disclose it? Um, the reason they wouldn't disclose it is because they would like the technology for themselves, and uh, they would want to keep. China and Russia and other countries that are considered our adversaries away from this technology. And, you know, but that's, see, that's, you're dealing with the government head. You're not dealing with the UFO head. You're dealing with the government head, right? So the, the head is in Cabeza, you know? So you're dealing with that. And that's the problem that I think that we have is it's a sort of an old school way of thinking. They're not thinking universally. They're thinking within their walls of their complex. Keep it within my walls. Okay, well, we're almost out of time. Marie's going to have to wait till July 11th, uh, the open line show, to get an answer to that, that amazing question. Mark, tell us about uh, Sky Tour and uh, live stream and um, what's going on with you. Where can people find out more? Yeah, actually, tonight on KGRA, we're going to have Sky Tour Radio, uh, which is the radio show that goes along with SkyTour Livestream. SkyTour Livestream is a wonderful journey in the night sky, a live observatory. We take people all over the sky. They can pick objects they want to see. They can interact with us. And uh, 
Uh, we show people beautiful objects. We take images of them and show them these gorgeous nebulae and galaxies in real time. Um, and um, we have people all over the world that have joined us. Thousands of people have subscribed. It's all free. And it's on YouTube. It's SkyTour Livestream on YouTube. You look it up, you'll find it. And we have the only instrument of its kind on the planet that can that can look at the sky the way it does. Uh, it's a it's a prototype system, and uh, it's just been working beautifully. I've been doing testing with it in the Arizona desert. The sky is it's just gorgeous. It, it brings you to tears when you look up at night out there. It's just beautiful. Outstanding. So, people can join. And Peter, uh, tell us about uh, your podcast, uh, Shadowy Spectrum. Uh, where can people uh, take advantage of that? Well, it's uh, Shadowy with a Y, and uh, it's on YouTube. And I'm going to continue to do that, interviewing people uh, outside the United States and finding out what's happening in the rest of the world. Outstanding. Yeah. Very good. Well, again, uh, well, let's get to our announcements here, and uh, we'll be wrapping up. Uh, our show now has its own app. It's bare bones, just uh, as most of the past shows uh, in the recorded form, but we plan to add features as we go. It should be in the Apple and Google online stores in a few months. I've a lot of hoops to jump to for, through for that. But there's a link at BehindTheParanormal.com if you'd like to download it now. And you know, Paul, you should tell people about your own books. You know, you and Ben have written some really great books, and I think people should look for those as well. Uh, as well as Peter here and myself. We've both written books that are available. Uh, mine's available on Amazon. It's called The Populated Universe. Peter, uh, I think you have your book. You can show us uh, the uh, bumper sticker. Oh, that's, that's not my book. That's uh, oh, that, that, that's the quote at the end. Oh, okay. That's a okay, spoiler. So. Yeah, all right. Uh, a little spoiler. Not, not fully spoiled, though. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, you can also go to BehindTheParanormal.com to check these guys out. They're fantastic. Uh, you can find out more about the show, uh, the cases over the years that they've done, public appearances, and how to book Paul and Ben to show up at your event, along with a whole bunch of at least 900-plus free recorded shows from 13-plus years in the air. I can't believe you've been on the air that long. That's crazy, but it's great, uh, including uh, your four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, which was phenomenal. Uh, so you've got special shows and podcasts as well. So you, you guys are you know, you're the whole package right there. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Um, and, Peter? Uh, yeah. Past shows back to uh, late 2009 are also available on major podcast platforms, including YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live, and more. Outstanding. What do we have next week, Mark? Uh, I don't know what you've got next week. Oh, okay. Well, I'll say it. Uh, June 27th. Uh, ben and I will be back uh, here live, and we welcome 50-year British researcher and author Paul Askoff, who will uh, let us in on UFOs, the true story. That's right. Okay, you're right. I'm sorry about that. I did, I did know that. That's all right. That's all right. Okay, so Peter is going to provide our quote for this evening, or I should say for this afternoon. So go ahead, Peter, and show us what you got. Okay, we leave you today with a vintage quote from a book by Klaus Schwann, which is uh, right here. And uh, on the back here, he's got a bumper sticker. I don't know if this is uh, visible here. Yeah, we can see it. Yeah. Uh, flying saucers are real. The Air Force doesn't exist. <laughs> I love that. Or the RAF doesn't exist if you were among our British listeners. All right. Okay. 
So a special thanks once again to Dave Richards, our wonderful station manager, sitting in for Ben on the board today. And thanks for joining us for our 900th show. I'm Paul Eno. And I think I'm Mark D'Antonio. And I'm Peter William Shelley. Thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we'll see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.